1: Savings from premium gifts to show stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15 stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rose, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. So, hello and welcome to the New Books Network. I'm your host, Nicole Bourbonnet, an associate professor of international history and politics at the Graduate Institute in Geneva, Switzerland. And I'm joined today by Dr. Adrian Strong, an associate professor of anthropology at the University of Florida. She's author of the book, Documenting Death, Maternal Mortality, and the Ethics of Care in Tanzania, published by University of California Press in 2020. The book provides a rich and nuanced account of the inner workings of a government regional hospital in Tanzania and was awarded the 2021 Eileen Basker Memorial Prize from the Society for Medical Anthropology. So, Adrienne, thank you very much for joining me today. Uh, Can you start by just telling us a bit about your background and how you came to this subject of maternal health and maybe to this particular hospital as well.
0: Sure. Happy to be here and have a chance to chat about the book. Really, the story of how I came to maternal health generally as a topic goes back to When I was, what, about 19 years old on my (laughs) second trip to Tanzania, um, I went while still an undergraduate and had a chance to go to a regional hospital in a different part of the country than where the book is set. And they, uh, at the hospital there, had been willing to have some students come and do some shadowing. At that point in my undergraduate degree kind of process, I was still Uh, thinking about going to medical school and wanting to be a physician. And for me, I was really interested in global health, infectious disease. So getting a chance to spend time at this hospital seemed like a wonderful opportunity. It turned out one of the people, one of the doctors who knew the most English and who was willing to have me and a couple other students follow along behind him and ask questions every day, was the doctor assigned to the maternity ward. And so we trotted along behind him as he did daily rounds and things like that and asked a lot of questions and he would invite us to observe surgery and things like that. And one morning after the morning clinical meeting, he asked if we wanted to go uh, see him do a post-mortem exam. And I think I was with two other students and we were all very sort of nervous about doing this. We weren't sure how we would feel having not encountered death up close like that really in our own context in the United States for any of us, um, nor to that point in Tanzania. So we were a little concerned about how we might feel and the appropriateness maybe of being present, but the doctor assured us that it was fine. It would be a a learning experience and it was important for him to do this to understand why um, the person had died. And it turned out that it was a woman who had been admitted to the maternity ward and had died. During labor with her full term baby still inside, and uh, watching him do that autopsy after having watched him do C sections, I realized that the first incision he was making, the first cut he was making for this autopsy, was the same as what he did for a C section. Mm-hmm. He was removing the baby. Uh, in Tanzania, it's a practice that you don't bury. The baby together with the mother so anytime a mother dies you have to remove the child uh, and in this case he also was wondering I think if anything had gone wrong if her uterus had ruptured or you know what if maybe something was wrong with the baby whatever it was so that was where he started and for me at 19 year- years old standing there that was had a really profound impact um and I just was then filled with all of these questions about why A woman like this woman in front of us still was dying uh, of known largely preventable causes and why so many more women in places like Tanzania were dying than in other countries like my home country of the United States and basically that switched my focus or my interests from infectious disease to maternal health and I have been pursuing the answers to those questions that I had basically ever since. And so the book was one uh, piece, uh, I hope, of trying to answer some of those questions. And of course, I didn't, like I said, stay at that hospital. When it came time to do my PhD work, uh, I decided to switch regions, go someplace new, and I picked the RuPaul region and the referral hospital there, because they were always low on the sort of rank list of um indicators related to maternal and reproductive health in the country so they were always kind of in the bottom five regions for all of these indicators and I just thought to myself you know the numbers can only tell you so much so I better go see what else there is what is the story here behind these numbers and behind this sort of poor ranking of this region that I had Never heard of before. and it's a remote area in the southwest corner of the country. and it just so happened through a very serendipitous turn of events that someone I had known from the first place I'd been working. Uh, his sister is a nurse at the referral hospital
1: hmm. in the
0: Rukwa region. and so she arrived at the bus stand to received me when I came the very first time and I'm forever indebted to her and she's just been a wonderful uh, host in that region and is like family to me now. So it all worked out.
1: Uh, yeah oh it's so important for for the fieldwork to have those kinds of connections um, and you make the point in the book that you know a lot of the anthropological work around maternal health has focused on communities has focused on the women themselves but you really focus in on the hospital right as a site of as a as a critical site here and kind of larger make a larger critique about this idea that the you know the problems are always in the communities or in the families that it's some kind of vague notion of culture that is the problem whereas what happens if we look to the biomedical institution as well so can you maybe tell a little bit more about that aspect of the argument you know why you why you felt it was so important to focus on a hospital as a fieldwork site
0: yeah i think as maybe you can tell from that first little story i kind of have my origin point in health facilities in Tanzania. That was sort of my entree into doing things in the country. At, and I said, because I was interested in becoming a physician. But even after I decided that was maybe not the route I wanted to go and I wanted to pursue medical anthropology instead, because that was what I was finding was helping me answer these questions I had about these global inequities. Um, I still had so many connections with healthcare workers and healthcare institutions in Tanzania that it was easy for me to continue to go to hospitals and even when I first went to the Rukor region I still had this plan for my PhD that I was going to be community based and I had done all of this literature review about like modernity and, you know, self, I don't know, self-presentation and how to be a modern woman in Tanzania via location of birth and like all these (laughs) things. And then people were asking, I was asking questions and people were like, yes, no, I don't know. And it totally fell flat. Right. Uh, Mm -hmm. And I was like, wow, you know, this is not a dissertation going to make if I get (laughs) two word answers from people. (laughs) really hard. But then it turned out in that same visit when I was trying to do this pilot study asking sort of more community-based questions, the people who were easily talking to me and clearly had a lot to share and a lot that they wanted to discuss were the nurses and doctors on the maternity ward. And they, a lot of their stories were about the challenges of their work environment and how difficult it was to get the supplies they need or how they didn't have a specialist OBGYN working with them or the low staffing numbers and all of these sorts of things. And I didn't even have to ask, really. Um, these were just things that came up very organically in conversation. And after I returned to the U.S. after that pilot study, a friend of mine in grad school said, well, why don't you just work in the hospital? Because it sounds like you have really good connections and access there. And I think there was still some part of me that thought, oh, anthropology is what you do out in the community. And that's not what you do in a hospital because I hadn't to that point been exposed to what is was already a body of literature based in biomedical healthcare settings. I was just so... Used to the literature on maternal health that was based in communities and really about acknowledging the efficacy of local practices and traditional midwives and um, sort of cultural diversity when it comes to birthing models and things like that. And so in my mind, like none of those things were things that you find in the hospital. And so they must not be appropriate objects of study for a a budding anthropologist. Um, (laughs) But in the end, I listened to her because that's what felt the most organic to me. And that was clearly, those were the people that I had met who really had something they needed to get out there in the world. And I became convinced that you know the hospital very much Uh, because of the way it functions, or because of its dysfunction, can exacerbate underlying structural inequities, or can undermine women's and families' efforts to get to care if once they get there, everything falls apart, right? Um, So that was, I think, why I ended up deciding to be based in, in the hospital. And since then, I've also just come to be really, really interested in hospitals as institutions and how they work. And they're um, kind of a microcosm of society maybe, but also their own unique beast in a lot of ways. And you have patients and their family members and nurses and doctors and different structures of power and hierarchy and gender dynamics, especially when you have nursing still very female and Doctors still very male in Tanzania. So there were so many things that I felt like really lent themselves to uh, anthropological analysis in that setting.
1: Yeah, right. It's kind of this meeting point of all of those issues and of all of those actors, right, who are key in in the maternal health story. And you talk in the book about about actually getting quite involved in the day-to-day life of the hospitals. So, um, you know, you're stocking supplies, you're mopping floors, you're even sometimes involved in delivering babies. Uh, Can you say a bit about, you know, that experience of being involved in the day-to-day work and why you decided to do that Uh, as you went along in your field research, becoming, you know, not just an observer, but uh, very much a participant in the hospital work?
0: We throw participant observer around a lot as anthropologists and as ethnographers. And of course, in different settings, this means radically different things. It's one thing maybe if you, if I were in Tanzania to be studying farming, people would give me a hand hoe and let me follow them to the field and they would think I was very slow, but I could certainly you know, make my own rows of crops or something, right? Because the stakes, if I mess it up, are pretty low, because I also probably haven't gotten very far because I'm very slow, <laughs> right? Um and but the so then the level of participation that I can really do to understand what farming is like in that context is maybe very different than uh what one would think of as a hospital and the level of involvement you could have if you are not um a trained medical professional and that was something that through all of my time being in these hospital settings, I grappled with. I think what's very familiar to people in clinical settings in Tanzania is having students. So whether they're nursing students or, um, medical officer, so like MD students, or if they're clinical officer students who are somewhere between like a registered nurse and a physician, they're really used to this teacher-learner kind of dynamic. And so, especially when I was still a student, I would come in and say, I'm a student from the United States and I would be very clear what I was studying, which was not medicine or nursing, but that those things are less legible in that context than this idea of just like a student who is coming to learn clinical things. So people would always ask me to do far more than I felt comfortable doing, I would say. And for many, many years, I resisted doing anything much. Um, And so when I embarked on the long field work for this book, I knew that there were going to be negotiations around uh, my involvement and what it was I was doing. The maternity ward at that time, at that hospital that I call Moingu in the book, was pretty understaffed. It got a little bit better while I was there. Uh, But there were, there was literally a moment where on one of my first visits, a baby just fell on the floor when it was born because there was no Mm -hmm. one there to help the woman. And she was standing because that's what felt right and good to her. And she was standing and she pushed and the baby came out and fell on the floor. Mm -hmm. And so in that context of that environment of scarcity um, my presence had to be negotiated in a different way and not necessarily because I felt like I should be doing more but because the people I was working with felt like my presence was untenable if I was just scribbling away in my little notebook and I talk about this in, in the intro to the book and I think it's it makes a lot of people uncomfortable the fact that I admit that I helped deliver babies sometimes. Um, and I didn't do that when other people were available to do it. It was like when it was me or the cleaner or the floor, right? Yeah. Um, and so those were choices that I didn't make lightly. And in the book, I talk about how, if we're going to talk about the ethics of my participation, we also have to talk about the ethics of non-participation,
1: mm-hmm.
0: especially in this kind of environment where I was another set of hands that could help. And so what would it have said if I chose to not help when I was being called upon to do so? And it wasn't that somebody was just like, go deliver a baby. There was a nationally recognized trainer of trainers for basic emergency obstetric and neonatal care who was extremely well respected and very experienced midwife. And she was the one who said, Uh, When I said, well, I don't know what I'm doing, she said, well, I'm going to teach you. She's very pragmatic about it and said, then you will know. And she did. She she taught me exactly according to all of these guidelines for best practice. And I never did anything if I wasn't sure if it was the right thing to do and if it didn't follow the normal sort of, I don't know, string of events like it's supposed Mm -hmm. to go. I would always call someone else and just do what i could to be with the woman there before or until someone else could come and help for instance like once um there were twins and i was not going to deliver twins but no one knew it was twins until after the first baby had already been born because she'd never had an ultrasound and the nurse who admitted her when she palpated her abdomen didn't feel twins which can certainly happen depending on how they're laying you know inside So things like that, you know, I always would call for assistance, certainly, and not progress beyond what I knew I had been taught to do. Um, But things like stocking supplies or mopping the floor or helping to fill in paperwork or taking sort of dictation for notes and things like that, those were all things that I had done in the past just to try to be a little bit helpful in this environment so that Nurses who could be caring for patients weren't running to the other side of the hospital to take blood samples to the lab, for instance. That's easily something that I could do, right, with no expertise.
1: Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Yeah, and I mean, that really brings us to the po- one of the central points of your book, which is this theme of scarcity, right? The way that scarcity affects kind of every stage along the process of arriving at the maternity hospital, receiving treatment um, and everything along the way and how that kind of forces these ethical dilemmas, not, not only for yourself, but for, for all the different actors involved. So can you maybe say a bit about, you know, where do we see scarcity, what kinds of scarcity uh, shape the hospital experience, and how does that impact ethics and the and the kind of gap between official ethics and everyday ethics that you that you discuss in the book?
0: Yeah, absolutely. It's definitely a huge underlying theme, and it's interesting. Now I look back, I went to this ho- same hospital in the summer of 2022, and I was shocked because it was like silent. And there was hardly anyone there. And they told me that the numbers that they're seeing um, of people, women coming to give birth have just declined precipitously in the last couple of years. Mm -hmm. So it's very different. So I just want to throw that out there that, Mm -hmm. you know, this, the research that I did for this was almost 10 years ago now, and a lot has changed through a variety of efforts to improve care and um, make it so that things are safer, both for the medical professionals working in this environment and also for the women who are getting care there. But uh, at that time, certainly the maternity ward was seeing six, sometimes up to 600 births per month, which is a huge number with a nursing staff of somewhere between like 20 and 30 nurses at any given time. And that's everybody on staff. That's not who is working on that day. That's like your full complement of nurses. and then three usually three physicians and at for most of the time I was there none of them were actually specialized in obstetrics mm. so their ability then to be able to adjust to any sort of emergency is different than if they had more specialized expertise. They learned a lot on the job. So these physicians were very, very good if they had worked on maternity for an extended period of time. But ultimately, you reach the end of that expertise that you've just gathered along the way, right? Uh, There was a scarcity of supplies, a scarcity of beds. Often people were sharing beds, not when people were actually um, in active labor generally but certainly beforehand and certainly postnatally there was a scarcity of medications often sometimes we didn't have the delivery packs available which are just the very basic it's just the very basic set of tools necessary to help the woman like um clamps forceps to clamp off the um umbilical cord or a dish to be able to put the placenta in or cloth to uh, make sure it's sterilized to help clean the baby and things like that. Sometimes even those were unavailable. Uh, Cord clamps were often unavailable. Sometimes even they just were using um, basically a kind of like shoestring to tie the umbilical cords and I mean this was sterilized and it came from the medical stores department but sometimes even that was unavailable and so then people are using like the cuffs of their surgical gloves they Uh, would rip them off and tear tear them off the glove and then use that to uh, tie off the umbilical cord so people were the nurses in particular had to be very uh, inventive sometimes, but they also then lacked things like personal protective equipment. So that I talk about how that really affected their own ability to interact with patients. Even if they might have wanted to, they were afraid themselves of being exposed to infectious diseases. If you don't know if people have something like hepatitis B, or if you don't know if they have HIV, they're HIV positive. That can certainly uh, influence very understandably your willingness to, uh, enter into a situation where you're in close proximity with people's bodily fluids, Mm -hmm. right? And in the labor ward, I talk about how for anybody who's not seen that, uh, and having now given birth myself, I think it's still different when you're doing it than if you're seeing it, (laughs) um, there's a, there's so much bodily fluid involved, (laughs) (laughs) and like in in unpredictable ways sometimes too right so the nurses would joke about getting splashed with amniotic fluid if someone's water breaks in (laughs) while they're pushing in particular because sometimes then it would like splash with kind of a lot of force and so you could think that you're not standing anywhere close and then all of a sudden you're like in the splash zone again right so that kind of unpredictability also made it harder for nurses to feel safe in that environment, as opposed to uh, what they would always say, like the male medical ward, where everyone is just laying there with their hypertension. That's been- <laughs> right. Yeah. Totally different. Yeah. Um, so there are, you know, a lot of ways in which scarcity impacted, not just the medical treatment that could be delivered, but also the social relations And sometimes patients would have to tell their family members to go out and get supplies, particularly if they needed an IV or if they needed to have a C-section and something was unavailable. Catheters were often out of stock and sometimes were very necessary. And so patients' families would have to go get them. But then there have been years and years and years of campaigns telling people, if you arrive at a government health facility to give birth, care is free. Mm-hmm. And so, this then also bred a lot of mistrust between, let's say, the healthcare system at large, but the people who bore the brunt of that were often the nurses who had to say, You have to go buy these things. And relatives would go, Well, are you trying to get money out of us? Do you mm-hmm. want to bribe? Are you sending us to your private pharmacy? Why should we have to pay for these things? We've been told it's free. And so there was then that led to delays in care, um, as well as altercations sometimes. And that creates a dangerous work environment in all sorts of ways as well.
1: Yeah, you really get the sense of this mismatch between the expectation and the sort of officially what's supposed to happen and what can actually happen uh, in reality. And you and you also talk more generally about this. This kind of tension created bit. Be- between the sort of endless parade of new protocols, of guidelines, of data collection efforts that's required by the government, but also by these global health donors, global health institutions. Uh, At one point, I think you even called the documents like a character in the story (laughs) themselves um, because they're just so sort of ever present. I mean, and you have some visuals of the, you know, piles of folders and discussions of the paperwork. And of course, you know, this is a big, um, a big theme of global health work is the importance of these guidelines of standard setting, of collecting data. Um, but you actually critique this to some extent, right? Uh, that there's also some costs to collecting all that data and to trying to formulate all these guidelines and sort of shifting them all the time. So can you just explain a little bit what you see as the potential problem with these, with these um, data collection and, and paperwork efforts?
0: Absolutely. And I think, at least in the United States, anybody who has gone to the doctor's office and had the doctor more fixated on entering things into the computer than (laughs) talking to you also can relate to this issue. Um, The documentation of the care provided sometimes then um, shows up the actual care provided. It, It takes center stage in a way that was not meant to happen. But the ways in which various agencies, let's say, have put in place these mechanisms, people have to document things in order to continue to receive funding or supplies or training support or whatever it might be. You have to demonstrate that you're making progress towards achieving these protocols and these goals and implementing them in order to be able to continue to work to implement them. Right. And so it creates this sort of cycle that self-reinforcing in a really what I would argue is a pathological sort of way in many instances because it just takes attention away from actually providing care. If I have to now as a nurse for instance sit down and document all the individual things that I did for every single one of my patients down to how many gloves I used or, or whatever it is. There are these log books that just continue to proliferate, the stacks of them grow and grow. Now, a lot of health facilities in Tanzania do have computer systems, but I was present in one health center when they were trying to do training on this. And this is also a difficulty for people who did not grow up as sort of digital natives, Mm -hmm. right? If the first time you're trying to learn how to now account for all of these same things in a digital format is when you're in your forties and you've been on the job for 15, 20 years, that's also very difficult and takes a lot of time away from what you're supposed to be doing, which is monitoring patients, caring for them, ensuring that nobody slipped through the cracks, right? Um, I also think that oftentimes these guidelines with all good intentions and lots of data to back them up are created by people in places that are far, far away from where they're actually being used and implemented. And this leads to a disconnect, sometimes in expectations, often in actual practice Right. Sometimes these guidelines just fail to to meet the needs of people on the ground. And sometimes they're they're good and they're aspirational sort of in that nurses and doctors also say, yes, we wish we could do these things. But if you're just dumping guideline after guideline after protocol on us and you're not providing us with the equipment or the machines or the trained personnel, to effectively implement and sustain all of these things, then then what is even the point? And so then you, when you get to the point where you can't see the point anymore, then you just enter into sort of a performance, what I call a performance of right. these activities. And then we're just recording the same thing over and over again without actually worrying about how much this reflects the local situation, because... Now, locally, we know that no one cares about the local situation. They just care about whether the check boxes are checked and the plans are filled out and it's all been sent to the right office. Right. And I think that creates a really, uh, an environment that is really detrimental to everyone.
1: Yeah. I mean, you talk about it also being kind of demoralizing, right? The process of, having to prioritize paperwork over over care work in this condition of scarcity as as we've been discussing and this really comes out in the chapter um, i really like the chapter where you focus in on the partograph which is this form that gives a kind of graphical representation of the progress of a woman's labor so you know stages of cervical dilation baby head level fetal heart rate all of those uh, different elements so can you maybe explain a bit what what does the story of the partograph tell us and and how it's used in the hospital? What does it illustrate um, about this situation in a very kind of practical, specific way?
0: Yeah, there are a lot of ways in which people use the partograph that deviate from its stated purpose, which is, as you just nicely summarized, to track a woman's labor. And this tool was uh, sort of spread throughout the world Uh, starting in the the early 90s after a big WHO trial showed that it was helpful in identifying uh, women who might have delayed progress of labor for various reasons. And it's meant to essentially be like a decision-making tool. So you get to a certain point and you're supposed to take some kind of action, whether that's um, giving some Pitocin or if it's Uh, starting to assess her for uh, need to have a C-section or starting IV fluids or whatever it is, you're supposed to do something. And everybody, every single woman in labor is supposed to have one of these filled out. They're supposed to get checked, cervical dilatation, all of these different things that are plotted on this graph are supposed to be checked every four hours. Fetal heart rate more often than that. Uh, And then it's supposed to all be completed and filled out in a way that if you didn't know anything else, you could look at this piece of paper and know exactly what happened for this woman's progress of labor and her birth. Uh, In practice, when you don't have a lot of people and you have a lot of people in labor, and you don't have a lot of people to help them. You don't really fill out this piece of paper as you go along and uh, or it gets lost in the shuffle of things as people move from one part of the war to another or people come in as referral cases and they've already been in labor for a day or so many other things Or, or 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 right that mean that somewhere somebody hasn't filled out this graph properly. Okay, so then sometimes people kind of reconstruct it so that you can check this box that says, yes, a part of graph was used. And sometimes that's totally fine. In most cases, it's fine because most of the time people give birth without any problems, Hmm. right? Uh, In the event of someone who then does develop a problem and maybe is in labor for a very long time or... Um, the baby is not descending for some reason or what have you, it's important to know and to have that documentation. And when a woman died, this partograph was a key part of her file that people discussed and looked at and said, you know, should we have done something earlier? Were there warning signs on this partograph that we should have seen, etc.? And so one example that I talk about in the book is from a case where a woman She didn't die, but her baby did, and it was her first pregnancy, and um, really, it's because no one had checked up on her for many, many hours, and someone should have. Somehow, she fell through the cracks, whether it was shift handovers or just the night shift. They were busy with other things, or she was quiet, and no one thought she was in active labor or whatever it was. She fell through the cracks. Her baby ended up being stillborn. She had to have a C-section still and the baby was not alive. And her partograph showed, I had been there as well. I saw it with my own eyes. It showed that no one had documented anything on it for many, many hours. And uh, then when there was a meeting to discuss what had gone wrong, the partograph was nowhere to be found. And I talk about how this is understandably a protective thing. Probably no one ever admitted to taking it or hiding it or throwing it away. No one ever found it that I know of. Uh, And no one said anything when the, the physician in charge of the ward repeatedly asked for it to be produced. And uh, basically without that proof that there was some neglect here, no one could be held accountable in a way that might jeopardize their job or anything like that, right. Uh, And so that is kind of where that case ended. Uh, They were the nurses were sort of protecting each other, protecting themselves, protecting the ward so that they could continue to be there to offer care to other people. Um, And also, they all knew that that shouldn't have happened. And yet it had. And the partograph was sort of this key piece of evidence that then could no longer be used against them. Um, and people also used it in other times to protect themselves when they, for instance, needed to call the doctor to come review the patient. So the nurse thinks something is wrong. It's the middle of the night. The doctor's not at the hospital because there's not an on-call room for them to sleep in or something. So they're at home. They have to be fetched. They have to answer their phone. They have to wake up. They have to come in. All these things can delay their arrival. And then, if the doctor refuses to come in, say, or if they come in and they then don't examine the patient, the nurse might write on the chartograph, you know, the doctor was called at such and such a time. He came, refused to examine patient, said, "Look again in four hours. <laughs> don't bother me again." Mm-hmm. <laughs> the nurse might write these things so that if something then does happen. She is not the one. She can say, look, I did the right thing. It's documented here on the partograph. He was the one. The doctor was the one who was supposed to do something, and he didn't and told me it was fine. So there are a lot of ways that, I mean, there isn't a spot on the partograph that says, you know, rat out the doctor here. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right. But people use it in ways that fit the needs that they have in this environment.
1: Yeah, and you can really see them writing for that audience, right? Writing, you can tell that they're writing, they're filling out these forms for the audience, which is the government or you know the inter- the international donors, the international community, rather than for necessarily the hospital, the hospital itself. Um, and I think you can see also there this this question of care, and and you do. I think a really great job in the book of thinking about all the different dimensions of care in the hospital, care for each other, right? So we can see in that example of the filling out the partograph caring for each other, protecting each other, care for the women. Um, but then on the other hand, we also see violence, right? Structural violence uh, against the nurses themselves, against the patients, uh, emotional violence, and sometimes even physical violence. And I thought this, kind of juxtaposition or, or intersection between violence and care really came out in the concept of fierce care, which you talk about in one of the chapters. So can you maybe say a bit about, um, about this kind of care violence spectrum and maybe in particular about this concept of fierce care?
0: Yeah, obstetric violence, of course, is something that's been talked about in this space by anthropologists and public health practitioners and lots of others for several years now, And I certainly saw it in the settings that I've worked in in Tanzania, where um, people are being hit, slapped, yelled at. But we also include in obstetric violence, like denigrating language, if you're being made fun of, if you're being uh, discriminated against based on ethnicity or language or race, which in my setting is not as salient, but... All of these different kinds of abuse fit into obstetric violence, and we look at that. One of the things that I was always most interested in, based on my observations, was why these incidences of violence or disrespect and abuse seemed to come to a head or peak during the pushing stage of labor. So after you're fully dilated, before the baby is born, the pushing stage can last from minutes to hours sometimes, depending on a variety of factors. And that's where I always felt like nurses were slapping women. They were yelling at them to be focused. They would be saying things like, you know, you can't be afraid now, you know, um, or they would, women would be making noise and they would yell at them about the noise, all sorts of things and to me it seemed like it went beyond just just abuse with no purpose which of course did i want to be very clear did also happen
1: right
0: however in the second stage it seemed like it was directed at something and so trying to understand that I really, I tried to put in perspective why nurses were doing that. And sometimes they told me when I asked them, because I asked them at the very long, <laughs> the end of very long interviews, that was the last question I asked, hoping that I had built up enough rapport over the the preceding questions to have them answer me honestly. And a lot of them said things like, you know, of course, this is not in our nursing books. Like no one tells you to hit patients, but if I don't have other support and I don't have other tools and I don't know what else to do, end of the day, I want that baby to be born alive. The woman wants the baby to be born alive and I need her to push that baby out. And so I will do what I need to do, whether that's hitting her, slapping her, restraining her legs, yelling at her, whatever it is, I will do what I need to do to make sure that baby comes out alive. And that's very different than if you're in early labor and someone is making fun of you for your ethnicity or is hitting you um, or something right? In this moment, the nurses were viewing it as the baby's life is on the line, potentially the mother's life is on the line, and they're doing what they need to do so that both survive. And so I frame that as this kind of fierce care. Um, I think it's hard for us to accept that there can be that combination. No one, I think, wants to believe that. But it's certainly there and later on when i did a postdoc project in another region of tanzania i did a wide community-based survey uh, where i asked people about when it might be acceptable to hit a woman or yell at a woman in labor for instance and people were largely in agreement that if the life of the baby was maybe on the line or if the woman wasn't trying hard enough and following directions and something seemed like it was a problem, then that's what you had to do. And I I also don't think it's good to normalize that on a community level. Um, But I think that people were in agreement that that abuse or violence in that one moment was care for a broader purpose, care for the baby, care for the woman in the longer term, care for an extended kin network that was waiting for this child and hoping that the woman would safely uh, be able to give birth. And so in, the, in that perspective, this transitory violence was seen as sort of worth it for the broader purpose.
1: Yeah. And I think the the discussion is really nuanced, right? Where you're kind of talking about, okay, well, if you want to understand what's happening here, beyond just saying, oh, this is wrong, to understand the logic of it would be crucial, you know, regardless of, of sort of how you how you feel about it individually. And I thought that kind of also tied that discussion of when violence was okay and when, and when it was, or or not okay, but, you know, when it was seen as an ethical choice versus something else also tied into your discussion of the ideal patient and the concept of stratified reproduction, um, how different patients are kind of treated differently. So maybe if just um, one of the last, I have just a couple more questions, but you know, who was the ideal patient? What did they have to do to present and get the kind of the the highest level of care that they could? And what would pull away from from that treatment?
0: I opened the book with this story of a woman I call Paulina. And I would say that Paulina was the ideal patient. And that's partly why I chose to use her story because there was nothing in her story that, and who she was and how she presented herself that would allow the nurses or the doctors to say that it was her fault for dying. Um, She was clearly more middle-class. I can't remember. She might've been formally employed or her husband certainly was. She came, she was clean. She was well-fed. She was carrying all the supplies that she needed, that she was supposed to have a basin to put all her things in. She had plenty of extra clothing and fabric to put on the bed. She had the plastic sheet that she needed. She had extra pairs of gloves that the nurses and doctors could use. She was well-prepared. She knew she needed a C-section because she'd had prior C-sections. So she arrived before she was in labor, before she had contractions. So they had plenty of time theoretically to decide what to do and make a plan. Um, She was polite, she was well-spoken. All of these things made her the ideal patient. Non-ideal patients can't speak Swahili, so that's also kind of a gloss for being uneducated uh, or really backwoods kind of from nowhere the bush as people would say maybe um, people who are dirty people who make too much noise people who complain or or kind of do anything that falls under the umbrella of annoying the nurses Mm -hmm. people who demand attention um all of these people people who come too early too late people have too many children uh or are perceived to be having sort of out of control reproduction, like they're in their forties and they're on pregnancy number 15 or something like that. The nurses would have comments about that. So those would be non-ideal attributes. Um, Other people who got better care than, than others were people who knew nurses and doctors. And unfortunately I think world over that is probably the case. <laughs> if you know somebody, I mean, I chose to gave, give birth and have my obstetrics care at the hospital where my husband works.
1: <laughs>
0: knowing that if there was going to be a problem, we would have whole there and influence in a way that we wouldn't have in a place where nobody, we didn't have connection to anyone. Right. Mm-hmm. So I think this is the same world over, but the nurses certainly treated people very differently if they knew them uh, or knew they were the relative of another nurse or someone yeah. who worked at the hospital, for instance. So all of these things I think led to a stratification of the kinds of care that people got. And even if it's like everybody has access to the same material resources, it's just even that like emotional sort of connection or the um, kindness even that people were treated with. Because I talk about how, you know, if you're so exhausted working in this environment, then doing the emotion work of like being nice to people maybe falls by the wayside. But if you know that it's, you know, the neighbor of the nurse who works on your ward and, you know, you're going to you're going to be nice, you're going to pull that out of nowhere, whereas you're going to then go back to the rest of the patients and you're not going to have a smile for them and you're not going to joke with them about what they had for breakfast, you know.
1: Yeah. And I mean, as you say, some of it, this is, is world over and and probably everyone can relate to, but then you can really see how all of this gets magnified or enhanced by that basic condition of scarcity, right? When it's one thing to make decisions when there's lots of stuff available, but when you have limited time, limited emotional capacity from the stress of your work, then yeah, you can really see how that, that affects it. And this then, then comes to one of the larger points of the of the book as well which is how you know, there's this common assumption that the main problem is getting people to the hospital, right? That the main issue of maternal mortality is that women aren't going to the hospital soon enough because they have, you know, misinformed beliefs or they're being restricted by their communities or their partners. And you do talk about, you know, these are real things that, that impact that process, but that getting to the hospital is not always that kind of universal solution to the problem that it's often imagined to at one point you even describe this idea of the biomedical hospital as the hegemonic solution as a kind of collective fantasy Um, so why what is it that we're missing in focusing on this on, on seeing the getting to the hospital as the key rather than thinking about the hospital itself as a space
0: I think that a lot has shifted in the last decade now, wherein many global health interventions are focused now on improving quality of care, uh, which is absolutely necessary. Before, it was just get there, get there, get there. And now, when I ask people in Tanzania, where would you want to give birth? Very, I mean, extremely rarely would anybody tell you somewhere other than their local health facility? And that's not the case. When I first started working in Tanzania and just doing reproductive health kind of surveys, reproductive histories with people, many, many, many more people were having more of their children outside the hospital setting, but as newer generations are coming along, all they've ever heard is that they have to go to, they have to go to the hospital. And so people want that too. They see it as a place where they they believe they're going to get good care. And many people know, and I talk about this a little bit from the community work that I did, people know people who have died on the way to the hospital or in their own homes or after returning from a health facility or whatever it is. And people know that that's possible. And so I think they want to go to the hospital, right? But before there was so much emphasis just on getting there that it was like we just forgot that if you're going to send people someplace you got to make sure that there, there are the resources there and the skills there to actually deal with that and I think one of the reasons why Moingu got kind of overwhelmed with, with patients is because they were seen as the best in the area so people would leapfrog Hmm. So skip over other parts of the referral chain to go to this main hospital in the hopes that they would get the best quality of care there. But what that meant is that then they became overburdened and couldn't deliver good quality care. And so even at the time when I was there, the, the regional medical officer was really trying to get people to stay at lower levels of the referral chain if they didn't truly need a referral hospital, And I think now that's why there are so many fewer patients uh, on on the ward because it has worked. Now there are lower level facilities that can do C-sections that can provide really high quality care for women closer to their homes as well. And that's, that's how it should be, right? And I think focusing on quality is important, but then we also get into that. Now we're generating lots of new guidelines and standards that are impossible to meet maybe, right? So it can never be this siloed approach where we just say, ah, yes, now we need a quality improvement team and they will come up with things that need to be improved um, without also giving the quality improvement team the tools to implement the things that they've identified, even if those people are like locally based and are identifying what they need for themselves locally, where are they gonna get those things, right? So we have to have a much more comprehensive, holistic kind of multi-pronged approach to addressing these things instead of just saying, go to the hospital or now improve quality of care, whatever that means, right?
1: Yeah, and addressing, I guess, at core, that that scarcity, right? That without addressing that scarcity of people, of supplies, of everything along the way, you know, you can write all the kind of forms and protocols that you want, but you'll just see shortcuts. Um, and I think this this book really... Brilliantly shows that by taking us through that day-to-day experience that you that you did, lived in your in your field work, and we see all of these moments of shortcuts. But we then we also see some pretty incredible moments of care and of people, you know, doing things that are incredible in the in the context. So, um, so thank you for that. Uh, I wanted to just close by asking you what you're working on now, or where you see this going in the future um, beyond well, I guess your main project of new baby. (laughs)
0: Um, So I have a new grant that I'm working on. It's, I guess, not so new anymore. We're about halfway through, and that is looking at pain care and pain management in Tanzania, which kind of came out of um, some of my experiences on the maternity ward where there is no pain management and uh, where only after C-sections do you get any kind of, real anything beyond paracetamol right Uh, but also like a very sort of not great narcotic and so I became very interested in what happens when you have other kinds of pain that need to be treated and when do you think it's appropriate to expect pain treatment and when do you not like in labor a lot of people uh, don't maybe believe that you need pain care during Labor, for instance, but um, also really interested in sort of gendered perceptions of pain and pain management. So that's what I'm working on currently with a postdoc, and I have several um, undergraduate students who are working with me in various capacities. So I'm heading with my currently five month old to Tanzania at <laughs> the end of January for six months next year oh, to wow. do the main part of the data collection for that project. And uh, then next fall, I have sabbatical for the first time since starting my job. And my hope is to use that time to write sort of part two to the book, which I intend to focus more closely on the nurses and kind of who they are as professionals and people in the context of trying to be the frontline providers and the frontline sort of fighters against maternal and neonatal mortality. So I did a lot of archival research, uh, looking at the development of the nursing profession in Tanzania and I did some really just amazing interviews with uh, nurses who had retired. So in 2021 maybe, I 2019 and 2021, I did a bunch of follow-up interviews with some of the oldest nurses that I uh, know and just like how they became nurses and how they've seen the profession change. And I think there are a lot of interesting things there, both about nursing, but also broader society in Tanzania and the shift from socialism and uh, post-independence to sort of the present day moment. And also a lot about how nurse midwives are really key in transmitting what it means to be a mother in this context and what that is supposed to look like. and how one uh, makes that jump from woman to mother Mm. in this context. So I'm hoping to write that book. I've had people ask more about the nurses because they're so key clearly in what I write in this book. And yet you maybe don't feel like you get to know them very well in this book. Uh, So I'm hoping that part two will, will give you more insight into who they are.
1: Uh, that's great, because I mean, you obviously everyone sort of has these platitudes about the importance of nurses and the importance of care work, but I think what your book does well and, and what your next project will do is actually give us an understanding of what that means in in practice and what those lives are like beyond that that sort of superficial level discussion we often have about nurses and nursing. Um, Great. Okay. Well, I will let you go for now, but thank you so much for speaking to me today and congratulations on the book. Thanks. It was
0: great to be with you.